Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brett. How are you? I'm all right. I'm great. I'm fantastic. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, which is Juan and Hamio. Juan is the managing partner of Hunt and Andrew Kurth's Miami office. He's a commercial litigator who focuses on the defense of companies facing complex employment disputes. He regularly represents clients in discrimination and harassment lawsuits, wage and hour, ERISA litigation, enforcement of non-competes. And he also has extensive experience in international litigation and class action defense. He's a contributing author to the Hunt in Employment and Labor Perspectives blog. <laughs> He's a former adjunct professor of constitutional law at FIU, Florida International University. And he's also one of the most knowledgeable people I know on anything related to University of Florida football. And <laughs> that's really the reason why you and I wanted to have him here. But welcome, Juan. Thank you, Jeff. Great welcome. to be here. We'll see if we have enough time to get to Gator football. <laughs> but for now, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how'd you end up being a lawyer? Yeah, great to be with you guys. So I was born in Cuba. I came here when I was 10, went to a public school in South Florida. So I went to elementary school and then seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, and then high school, all at a different place. Oh, because really? that was the yeah, era yeah. of integration, busing, and all of that. So that was a different experience growing up here in Miami. But as I said, I went to Miami Senior High School here. Then I went to the University of Florida undergrad. Go Gators. There you go. <laughs> and I was an economics major there. And afterwards, I wanted to come back to Miami. So I went to the University of Miami School of Law and graduated from the University of Miami School of Law. Honestly, when I went to UM Law, I had no idea what being a lawyer meant other than you went to trial. That's the right. only thing I understood when they started saying things like, do you want to be a transactional lawyer? I had no idea what that meant. Right. Did you know, like, did you go to college thinking, I want to go to law school? How'd you end up at law school? Not really. I went, I wanted to be a journalist for reasons that I sometimes have a hard time explaining to myself. I gravitated towards economics. Right. It's something I just wanted to learn something about. And then I just, as I was thinking about what to do, I love to write. I thought I was a good public speaker, maybe deluding myself, but then I decided, well, that's what lawyers do. So I went to law school, showed up the first day of class and my classmates were all there talking about law firms and their future. And I had no idea what a law firm was or anything like that. But graduate. So we can date ourselves. Who were your first economics professors at UF? David Denslow, obviously. Denslow. Yeah. The guy's a legend. The guy is a yeah. legend. That was yeah. micro. And then macro, what was his name? He had like a really long hair. He was a bit more eccentric than yeah, David yeah, Denzel. He was like the polar opposite of David Denzel. Yeah, he was remember. a macro guy and I can't yeah, remember his name. Yeah. I remember Denzel had mm -hmm. a thing where on the first day, and I don't think you could do this anymore, he would ask people in the front row their social security numbers. And at the end of the class, he could recite them all back. I don't think anyone would say their social security number no, anymore. But, no, it would get recorded. <laughs> right, yeah, recorded. But he would remember all kinds of economic statistics and he would sit there Thank in class you. and just, you remember that? And I, he was just like, yeah. Blurred him out. He was a legend. That was one of those things I tried to forget, I think. So you were talking about arriving at law school and you felt like perhaps other people were a bit more prepared for the profession than you. Yeah, absolutely. You just sort of signed up and here you are. Yeah. You know, I graduated. I worked for a law firm for about a half a year. And then I went and started at Holland the Night. You were somewhere before Holland and Night? Yeah. yeah. I had right. clerked somewhere and I had stayed there. Right. And then I went to Holland the Night for about, what, 11 years, 12 years, something like that. And then with two or three of 
partners at Holland and Knight, we went and sort of launched, uh, yeah, founded the Miami office of Hunton, back then Hunton and Williams, mm-hmm. which was back then a exclusively Virginia centered office. You know, their headquarters were in Richmond and have stayed there ever since. I and think it's like Miami, 23 years. Right. And five Miami guys opened up in the Miami office. What year? That was 2000. That was 1999. Oh, it was like March of 1999. Now we could talk about the current state of things for your Miami. You could just jump right to that and kind of yeah, move around yeah. a lot. You kind of did it back in the day years ago when there weren't as many international or global firms coming here. A lot of people, it was like a stepping stone to South America. At least they thought so. Exactly. Yeah. And so what are you seeing today? I mean, we're seeing all of these global firms decide that they're going to come and open up and really seems like open up a Miami office and not just as a stepping stone for Latin America. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I think in the last, really as much as long as 10 years ago, you started seeing that, right? That trend of international firms opening in Miami, getting lateral partners from all the big firms and sort of launching their offices here. I think it's a great thing for Miami in the sense for the profession in one way, because I think it tells the legal profession and sort of the client world Mm -hmm. that, hey, this is a destination place. Like you said, it's not just a jumping off point for Latin America. I think that right. was a mistake that a lot of firms used to make. Or just a satellite. Yeah, in the 90s, right? yeah. late 90s. I remember at that time, Miami led the nation in failed satellite offices. Exactly. Because everyone thought it was going to be open in Miami office and all of a sudden Latin America will just come. So I was telling a law student this weekend that I was, you know, sort of talking about the legal market. And I said, you know, people go to Miami thinking I'm going to do international law. And what does that even mean? You know, <laughs> right, right, and right. for a lot of people, it's what it ends up being is what is you represent right. foreign clients, right? right? It's not international law. But I think there was that sense that sort of Miami was this gateway to Latin America and all of that, right. which may be true to some extent, but it's not, I don't think, and I don't know your experience, I don't think it's a way to build a law firm. Unless you don't have a lot of expectations. No, it doesn't seem that way, right? And certainly not for us, but it doesn't seem that way. It's more to me that is more of just satellite offices. It's a jumping off point for South America rather than servicing clients that are here based in Miami or based in Florida. That's exactly right. And I know that when we opened the Hunton office in Miami, I know Mm -hmm. for my partners, for me, that was a real issue that we had. We wanted to make sure that it was not a satellite office. Right. That that's not the concept or the sense that they had. And that it wasn't just that also. Oh, we're going to now have some entree into Latin America. We were pretty convinced of that. But I think that was part of why I think we have been successful in the market that we had staying power Mm -hmm. is because we never saw it that way. Right. And the firm leadership never saw it that way. So I think that's important. I also think that the fact that Hunton is a Virginia-based firm had something to do with the receptiveness to another office, not being just a stepchild. A lot of the big firms are New York-centric. And with all respect to my New York brethren, a lot of New York firms think that they're the center of the world and everything else is just a second tier. And I don't think Hunton had that approach. I think that's exactly right. I think that was a big part of it. When we joined the firm, they had a culture that I think was receptive to lawyers that were new. And I think... They had more of a team department-centric approach, and I think that helped. And I think they also, we started small. I mean, we started with four lawyers, then a fifth joined us, and then we kind of grew from there. So good four and then five? Yeah, exactly. But having said that, we just always had the mentality that we didn't want to grow for growth's sake, that you wanted to surround yourself with quality lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I think the success of firms that are coming in now, we'll see that maybe in 10 years, we'll be able to judge whether (laughs) I'm right or wrong. So keep the tape. But I think that the success of that is, it's a recruiting issue to me. It's do you attract people 
who are really, really quality lawyers, not just names in the legal community, but really have a lot to contribute and are willing to build a practice as part of a law firm. And I think we were always mindful of that as opposed to just, hey, let's bring in a lot of lateral partners and then let's see what shakes out in three or four years. Well, it's almost like building a law firm, but you're just an office within sort of a global empire, if you will. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think part of the success of like Hunt and Merched about what the pandemic throws time off, but just I think 2019, 2018, we merged with the Andrews Kurth firm in Houston. And I think part of the reason why that merger has been successful, and I think it really has, is because we just didn't look at it as, hey, let's merge two firms and see what shakes out. But we had a very thoughtful approach to, we need to merge lawyers who have sort of the same cultural view, the same values. I mean, and people talk about that a lot. That's almost a mantra, but you see it in practice. And that's what leads to, I think, lasting relationships that actually means that you're going to have some staying power. What was a bit stunning to me was hearing some of the footprint that they're laying down, at least the leases they're signing. 60,000 square feet, 50,000 square feet. I mean, that's a lot of space. The firms that are opening offices. Yeah, what you were saying, Juan, was, you know, when you guys came down here or Hunton came down here initially, it was small, four lawyers, and we're going to grow as we need to. We have these firms coming down, signing these massive leases and saying, all right, now we're going to fill that space. That's a scary economic yeah. proposition, scary, right? right? Because, yeah. and then that puts pressure on the lawyers right. that exactly. you've attracted laterally yeah. to do that. I'm not saying, you know, I'm sure some will be very successful, but I'm sure some will not because of that. Right. right. Because I think clock, literally. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And you've already seen it with some firms that have been here. And so I think the issue now is not so much a satellite concept as it is that. Have you made the right economic <laughs> bet? In terms of, you know, it's almost like they want to show that they're putting down roots by signing these massive leases, you know, instead of the concept of, well, you're just sort of dipping your toe in. And so I'm not going to join you. I'm going to go to another firm that is more entrenched. And I think what you said, actually, putting down roots is the key, Mm -hmm. because I think opening an office is not the same as putting down roots. You know, opening an office, you can open an office and have a couple lawyers here, sign a big lease and make a splash. But If they're not involved in the community and representing clients here and in courts here and in Mm -hmm. cases here, and they don't put down roots in the community, then they may or may not succeed. Because we have satellite offices here for law firms that none of us see. They're not in cases here. They're not involved in the community. They just have an office here. That's exactly right. I also think we were, I mean, (laughs) some of my partners may not like me saying this, but we were from the beginning a very litigation-centered firm. Mm -hmm. I think, Jeff, you experienced that. For a while, we were a very litigation-centered firm. And then we attracted really top-notch corporate lawyers. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't have that transactional side with great lawyers. But there's something about litigation that entrenches you in the local legal market. (laughs) Because you go to court, your judges know you, you're seen, and we had some really successful litigators. I think that helped us. Mm -hmm. Do we think there's enough industry to support all this and the rate pressure? I mean... You have firms coming from New York and partners at 1500 1800 an hour, associates at 900 an hour now. That, I think, yeah. is the biggest challenge. Yeah, so you have to attract lawyers who can meet that market, who can command those kinds of rates in a very competitive market. I practice in the employment law field, right? And we have great lawyers, great lawyers in firms that are not charging those rates. So you always feel that competitive pressure in my specific practice area. That's not true of all practice areas, but I see that. And the only way you can deal with that and the only way you can compete in that marketplace 
is to have very good quality lawyers, high quality lawyers attract cases that you have to differentiate yourself. Mm -hmm. Why are you worth that? And I think that is a big challenge mm -hmm. in this market where there is, as great as this market is, there is a limit. So when did you become managing partner of the I wanna, office? I was about 2010, 2011, somewhere in that time frame. So it's been... Yeah, about 10 years, 10 11 years, years something like and that. Before yeah. that, you practiced. I'm not trying to date you, but before that, you practiced for many years. How was that transition from just being a partner to being the managing partner? In my case, it wasn't that difficult. I think for a couple of reasons. I think we have a very good support staff. That's critical. I think you both have practiced enough that you know how important that is to the life of a firm. So that's one. And the other is, I think just the experience of having helped open the office whatever my role was in that, but you're in the ground floor. It's very different when you come laterally into a big firm or mm -hmm. you've grown in the big firm concept or environment in a big office and you sort of go through the ranks. But when you are four of you in a room trying to decide what's the right lease, what's the right amount of space that we want, and you have to project growth and you're doing that, then I think that sort of trains you for that, for that right. role. But there is a management aspect of it that is economic, as you guys know so very well in terms of managing yeah. your budgets and your expectations and all of that. And then there's what I would just sort of call the cultural aspect of it, right? You want to build the right culture or maintain the right culture. The people who came before me built a really good culture in our office and in our firm. And it was a challenge to maintain that. But a lot of that is keeping people that who are good people, not just lawyers, but support staff. Mm -hmm. and making sure your office is not just some conveyor belt, including support staff. And I think that helps you build a culture. And I think that helps. But to me, I think what eased my transition into that was just the fact that I had been there when we were building the office and I knew the people that we had and I wasn't just coming in cold into that situation. And I think it's probably come Brett's comment about all the other firms coming in and the pricing has made it more challenging to maintain, keep good people. Because they're getting calls and they're getting solicited and there's a lot of opportunities out there. And so if they're not happy, they're going to start taking those calls. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think recruiting and maintaining good talent is the biggest challenge that I think we have in this market. Yeah. I think it's probably true in any market. More so I mean, now, yeah. Yeah, more so yeah. now. I mean, yeah. lawyers, one of the things about managing, as you guys know so well, one of the things about managing a law firm is you're there, you're managing, but it's what your partners and your associates are doing that's really going to drive the success. You better have surrounded yourself with really good lawyers, because if you don't, then you could be the best manager in the world. You're not going to be successful yeah. in a bigger firm. In any firm, of course, of course. No, but if you're a very, very small people. shop and you're dependent on one person, one partner to bring in all the work, then that's one thing, you know, you're a small shop. But I think as you grow, mm -hmm. then you really are dependent on the quality of lawyers that you surround yourself with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And like you said, the support staff as well, quality of the support staff is super important. Maybe even more so. <laughs> no, it certainly is to the culture of yeah. the firm. The pandemic has shown that a lot, I think, in terms of the culture that you build. Not say you, not me individually, yeah, yeah. but that we sure. collectively yeah. have built in the firm and in the office. Because I think when you see how people reacted to the challenges, I mean, we moved from three floors in another building in Brickell to downtown Miami in the middle of the pandemic because we had to because we had already signed the lease. And just see how people pitched in and sort of the pride they took in making sure that the new office was nice. That tells you a lot about the quality of people you surround yourself with. People went the extra step, the extra mile, if you will, during those times. Just tells you a lot about people care for the institution, not just for the office. So that is important. I mean, if you go back today, we have, whether it's office services, whether it's some of our secretarial, professional assistant staff, paralegal staff, 
we have people who were there from the early 2000s. They've grown with the place. And that doesn't mean you don't have turnover and change. That's important. But sort of that loyalty factor is important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key to the culture. These things play off each other. Culture is maintained by keeping some semblance of your team together in place. But you keep some semblance of your team in place because there's a culture that they all feel a part of. That's exactly right. And that's a good way to measure whether you are building the right culture. And part of that, by the way, talk about retention of talent. This is more of a, my personal philosophy has always been, I say this to associates who leave the office because they want to go to something else because they see better growth opportunities somewhere else or they go in house. To me, part of it is making sure that as people transition out of your office, they want to leave. They leave on good terms. They leave because you accept the fact that, hey, you don't know what somebody's chosen path to success is or what their family situation is. And people see that, I think, the way people are treated on the way out. And that also, I think, affirms your culture. Yeah, I've read surveys said dozens of times that there's two ways to leave a big firm. One is an email that says Jeff Bass is no longer with the firm. And the other is there's a going away party in the kitchen at four <laughs> o'clock today. I wanted to leave with a party, so I succeeded. But no, I think that's a testament to the firm, too. I also think it depends how you leave, where you leave, of course. If you're going yeah. to a competitor, you're stealing clients. Or of whatever. course, of course. There's not going to be a going away party. Yeah. What have you guys done or how have you handled the culture maintenance in this weird transition period that we're in now where we're not only being flooded with the offices, firms opening offices, but also we have this hybrid, if you will, work environment where some people are back in the office and others aren't. Are you struggling with that? I don't know. We'll talk in two years (laughs) because I think that is a retention and a recruiting issue to a large extent. I think we've done well in that. I'm very confident that we have, but it's a challenge and it's a challenge. You may remember when we started the shutdown and everybody was off and that everybody was trying to do a weekly Zoom meeting, you know, and it's like, ah, I can't take one of those. Yeah, I can't take one of those anymore. I think it's a matter of communication, not just making sure that the partners are always communicating with the associates they work with, making sure that there's that sort of flow that you understand what people's needs are. That's what you did that. There are people in my office I haven't seen in two and a half years since March of 2020. But you know what? They have their own personal situation that you take into account and they're doing really well in terms of being productive and being helpful. I'm talking about both staff and lawyers. And I think once you account for that and you realize that communication is the critical thing, there are not many of those, but I was only half joking when I say come back in two years, because I think we're all trying to understand how this is going to evolve sort of organically. It's really just unknown. Exactly. And I feel for the young lawyers, because if they're not in the office, to me, that's how, and we've talked about it a lot, that's how you learn as a young lawyer, being around, Absolutely. interacting, just hearing things. And if you're not in the office and you're sitting in your house by yourself, yes, you're going to learn by drafting and research and all that. But how much can you learn? Uh, how much uh, can you feel from a Zoom call? A hundred percent. One thing I've noticed, and I, again, this is one, you know, maybe this is, you cannot draw conclusions from this, but I see in our office that some of our first and second year lawyers are in a lot more mm-hmm. than some of our midterm associates with a lot of exceptions. but. It's interesting to me because there's a level of associate who probably feels like I've already developed relationships. So I am freer, if you will, mm-hmm. to work remotely a lot more where the younger associates say, no, that's not the case. I mean, I think they just almost like organically that happens. Having said that, I talk a lot, I actually do, because we have these mentoring sessions that I'm a part of for you know, minority students across the state of Florida and stuff like that. So we talk a lot about, we have mentoring sessions 
And that's a great thing. And it's great to have mentors in the profession. You need that. But I also talk to young lawyers a lot about having role models, which I define not as, you know, somebody you look up to, but somebody you learn from almost by osmosis, not necessarily somebody who's mentoring you, not necessarily somebody who is taking the time to give Mm -hmm. you advice or whatever, but somebody that you happen to see take a deposition, whether it's your opposing counsel, but most of the time is someone you work with and you see them work, right? And that person may never give you the time of day in terms of mentoring, but they happen to be really good lawyers and you see them work and you learn that way. I don't think there's anyone who is very successful who did not in some way had some kind of mimetic sort of copycat, you know, you learn by watching other people. You get better by watching other people. That's an excellent point. And I think it's not even just how you work. In other words, not only how you interact with opposing counsel, but also how you interact with the paralegal and with staff and pleases and thank yous and how you just treat people with respect. It's almost like parenting, you know, your kids learn. From, from watching, watching you. No, you that's know, such really a great point. That is similar. such a great point. That is something that you talk about developing a culture. You do it not by talking about culture, but by being yeah. in a certain yeah. way, right? right? And you don't know if that's happening until you've you're seen it, it develop and you're in it. Exactly yeah. right. It's not, you know, everybody talks about culture, but do you have it? You have it if you do it, you know? Right. Yeah. And if you live it, it's sort of, I use the word organically, right. if it's just natural to yeah. you, if it right. happens. And if it does, other people see it. And lawyers who may not have that aptitude coming in, but they see that almost like, wow, to fit yeah. into this place, I have to be that way. Yeah. And I think that's how you create culture and maintain a culture. Yeah. And I think we underestimate, you're not going to take a first year aside and say, okay, say please and thank you to the paralegal or talk to them with respect or report to them what happened at the meeting, but they'll see you do that. Although we have had a few people come through here over the years where we had to sit them down and say, you say please and thank you when you're asking someone to help you do something. I just think that's some of these things, they seem so obvious. But that's why I say that you have to wait a couple of years, three years to see the real impact of what we've gone through the last two or three years and are going through now because it is those little things that make a difference and you don't know how that's going to play out. I would tell you that on an individual basis, I would encourage all the young lawyers to go into the office as much as possible, you know, interact because again, a lot of your learning is by seeing sort of, that's what I meant by modeling. So this is even like, we don't even know the thought process of young lawyers, right. And what they've seen and gone through. Cause when we came up, we had busy offices, right. Everyone was in, everyone's running around until 2020, like this whole concept of remote working and (laughs) seeing each other was just foreign. But we had a young lawyer who started here. He was at a prior firm. And he started on a week when either people were on vacation or some people were ill and the office was kind of empty. And I said to him, Hey, you know, it's not usually this empty, just this week happened, you know, whatever. And he said, this isn't empty to me. You know, remember I started during COVID, my legal career during COVID when it was either the office was completely empty or I was at home. I didn't even think about that. I was thinking, oh man, he must be thinking, wow, this place is gutted. There's nobody here. What's going on? And he was like, yeah, it's fine. So that's fascinating. Yeah. You know, it's right. fascinating. Just, I also think it's incumbent on partners, it's incumbent on yeah. leaders to reach out to young lawyers who are not in the office, mm-hmm. who work remote a lot, and make sure that there is that connection that, connection connection, that goes yeah. on and there yeah. are ways that you could do that, but you have to be purposeful about it. It's a recruiting issue these days. I mean, you cannot, you have to have the flexibility if you're going right. to recruit talent. So you have to be flexible. So then you also have to be very purposeful and mindful about how do you give that experience just to be fair to the young lawyer, Absolutely. number one, but yeah. also to help that person yeah. be integrated into what you want to build. 
I also think if you're a young lawyer and you're coming to an office and it's a whole floor and there's seven people on a whole floor and it's got to be boring too. We need human interaction and socialization. And if you're bored, you're not going to be happy. And if you're not happy, you're going to be looking for something else. And that's counter to building something. Have you said that? I do think people can be successful working remotely, but it takes a little bit of, again, being purposeful on their part also about looking for opportunities to learn, to get feedback. And again, to learn by watching, which is so critical. And I think it also depends, and we've talked about this and you've referred to it is where are they in their career? Exactly. Right? The more senior person who's got clients and business and they know what they're doing, for them, they can work remotely. They've already had their connection in their career. They should want to connect and train young people to mentor and be a role model. But for themselves, they don't really need to be. That's exactly right. Except that at some point, yeah. it's what you want out of your career. Sure. Because if you really want to progress in a law firm, then at some point you have to be a mentor, you have to be a leader, and you also have to be right. a business developer at right. some point, you know? Right. And all of that happens through human interaction. Yeah. Yeah. You got to build the next class. You need yeah. future leaders, otherwise you're always going to be there. That's exactly right. Juan? Wait, wait, wait. 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 We got to talk Juan. about Gator football. Yeah, yeah. For a few <laughs> minutes, right? Before we leave. Please. I didn't know if you were going to end it or no, not. No, I was Let's talk about Gator football this year. Coach Napier in, how do we feel in the room? I don't know about this year, but I think it's incredible though. though. It's about leadership. I think think if you watch what he's doing, Mm -hmm. sort of building a foundation. And again, there's that overused word, culture. Culture. But it's an overused word, absolutely. There's no one that's not building a culture, right? (laughs) But if you watch him work, and if you've seen, I mean, it's almost an example of somebody who is very methodical, very deliberate as a plan, and is not caught up in the immediacy of, I think he has well, and what's next, right? He's not thinking, yes. where am I going next? Exactly. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. I don't know about this year. I'm right. not very optimistic. We may see some bright spots yeah. and who knows, maybe we'll be surprised. Yeah. I'm really, really yeah. excited about the foundation he's building, you know, and how he's doing it. Well, we have, a, I like mean, two to three years. Got a good quarterback. I think so. That's right. That we do. That and, we do. you know, we have some good position players. That and we do. It's all about depth, man. It's all about depth. I know that, that. I think we're struggling with the depth maybe, but we'll but see. We'll see. I'm excited. It's one of those years that I'm really excited yeah. because you don't know what to expect, but it's also not the pressure of, you know. Right. Oh, we exactly. have, right. This Low is the year. This you is the year. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. supposed you know? to lose. Right? Yeah. 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 It's Danny Warfel's senior year, yeah. Tim Tebow's, yeah. and boy, he's only got one more year to go. Yeah. We got to win this year. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 I agree. I agree. All right. Go Gators. Juan, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for being here. Thanks yeah, for having thank, me. That's been really a, a lot. If, if you're listening and you like this episode, please give us a five-star review. Share the podcast with your friends and family and come visit us soon. Thanks, thank you, guys. Nelson. Thank you, Juan. Thank you. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron. Fast Amron.